Hacker Culture FM is supported by 1Password. 1Password is an easy-to-use, secure password manager that gives you and your family that peace of mind. With 24-7 support and award-winning mobile apps, you can make sure that when you're sharing your Netflix passwords, it's all under lock and key. And since everyone on the HCFM team uses 1Password, we've teamed up with them to give you three months free for 1Password families. That's right, three whole months. You can sign up now by going to hackerculture.fm slash 1Password. That's hackerculture.fm forward slash the number one password. Hey there, really quick before we get started, we got a review. Calista2600 says, love the format. Other podcast cutoff answers interviewers get, not here. Thanks you so much for the five stars, Callisto2600. And if you're listening to this episode, shoot me an email. I'd love to send you some merch as a thank you. Uh, I was joking one day and said, I, I want to have more Twitter followers than him. Uh, and so he bought me um, 30,000 fake followers for, for Christmas. Um, I just wake up one day and I'm starting to get these random followers and it's more and more and more and more. And I end up with, you know, over the course of time. So I took that upon that to uh, dive into some machine learning and some Golang and that kind of stuff and wrote uh, some stuff that went through and looked at all my followers and got rid of the bad ones and stuff. So there was a lot of that. But what I was finding is the the Zen piece I was looking for of creating something and going, ah, that's cool, I created something. Uh, I only got irregularly when I was writing software. From Hacker Culture FM, I'm Sean Sun, and you're listening to Security Sandbox, a podcast about the makers and breakers shaping cybersecurity. Basecamp, a main encampment providing supplies, shelter, and communications. Building one first is crucial to any mountaineer looking to go on their expeditions. But for leaders, building your base camp is just as important. In management land, a base camp means a steady and safe foundation that helps your team function at their best. To do so, leaders need to hire the right people and make the right choices to keep the camp from crumbling. Zait is my guest today. He's the Senior Manager of Security at Indeed a platform that helps link job seekers and companies together online. He's had a critical role in the earlier days of hiring for Indeed's budding security team. On this episode, we talk about how he built that team, how security and software engineers can work together, and his recent hobby, woodworking. Today's a story about building your base camp and maintaining it. So you are the senior manager of security at Indeed. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what that really means and what your day-to-day kind of looks like? Sure, sure. So uh, it basically means that I manage the uh, security engineering team at Indeed, which is um, uh, a team of people who helps uh, Indeed uh, build um, uh, software and applications and, and run them online in a secure way. And we basically deal... Uh, you know, uh, Infrastructure security, application security, DFIR, risk, uh, and that kind of stuff for um, all of the internal and external applications and systems at Indeed. After assessing where Indeed's security team was and where it needed to be, Zayt brought on a two-phase plan and transformed the team of eight people into 41. Uh, how did it feel joining the team of eight and, I guess, like thinking about the future? It was good. I mean, it was exactly what I was kind of looking for. I, I like to... Uh, I like to to build teams, I like to kind of assess what a business needs and and help them build the right kind of team to to solve the right kind of problems you know if, uh, in their risk you know cybersecurity space. So, uh, it felt felt good to get there. It was a it was a really good solid core group of generalists, um, all of which uh, you know are still with us. And then we moved on 
uh, to kind of building upwards and outwards, I guess. How did you build that team? Uh, what, do you, what did you look for as you hired people to, um, to turn eight into 41? Um, so Indeed has an amazing culture and it is a really, really uh, amazing place to work at. And I wanted to find people that would obviously uh, work well in Indeed, but would work well um, together as, you know, as a team. So we, uh, be, being a company who, you know, we help people get jobs, basically, um, I turned to some internal resources and kind of came up with a plan and said, this is how I would like to hire. Um, they already had a very robust uh, way of hiring for their engineering teams, and I based uh, what I did a lot off that, and then added a, a few other elements in it to to help us get the right kind of people um, through the funnel and in the door, with an aim to um, making it so that when we brought people on site, uh, it was a relatively uh, high chance that we would, uh, you know, probably find that it was a match, uh, and so that we didn't waste, you know, too much of our time or other people's time. So. So are you involved in that interview process? Early on, I was very involved in the interview process. And as the team grew and I got managers, um, you know, obviously I hire managers so they can do manager things. And one of them is, is recruiting. But very early on, um, I would be the first phone screen that we would do. And I would kind of just phone screen people to kind of see, uh, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, um, you know, what are you looking to do? Where are you coming from? You know, just get a feel for the person, see how they communicate, uh, talk a little bit about what's on their resume. But I wouldn't get uh, in, in depth and, and, and technical. We had um, kind of like some tests from hacker rank up front that you had to kind of pass. And we had a reasonably high, high bar on those. You had to kind of pass those and one for each of the, the main areas. And then once they got through those, um, they would do a phone screen with me. And then if I thought that they were fit for what we're looking for, um, then, you know, we would bring them on site. But in that talk with me, it was not super technical. And actually uh, about half of what I like to do in there is let them ask questions because uh, I learned uh, very much about a person and what they're looking for um, from the kind of questions uh, they ask when they go into uh, an interview situation. So, What were some challenges you ran into as you turned it from eight to 41 people? Finding uh, that many people, you know, it took me two and a half years to kind of do that. I mean, that's quite a, a hiring kind of thing to do. So, I mean, I think just finding that many people who would, you know, pass the the kind of the, the things we had lined up was kind of difficult. I think the other side to that is um, it in in the way that we do interviews like a lot of people in the team are involved in the interviews when people come on site i mean it's not just an interview with a couple of people there's you know six seven eight people involved in 45 minute sessions and all that kind of stuff and so um at some times we were having several candidates a week come on site for different things and so it, it was difficult sometimes trying to uh recruit at a fast enough pace but not disrupt what the team was doing like there was times when they were like, I would get feedback like, man, I, I feel like all I'm doing is interviewing people and stuff and I can't get my actual work done. And so we'd have to kind of mix it up a bit. But it actually got easier. The, the more people we had hired, the more people we kind of had to use for, for those things. There. And once my managers took some of that over, they um, yeah, it took the load off me especially. So, How have the priorities changed from, I guess, like your first year uh, working at Indeed and now? Um, I mean, they're all kind of memorable. I don't think I can talk in specifics about any particular one. I, I, you know, we, I obviously hired, um, a really 
uh, uh, great team. Um, I can tell you kind of some memorable uh, things that, that I've done. I, I'm, I get kind of, you know, got feelings on people and, and like people and that kind of stuff. And a couple of times I have hired uh, people to do one job and then discovered later that they actually have really good skills in another thing I need. And uh, I completely spaced out and missed that on their resume or spaced out and missed that. Oh, uh, I need somebody for this other thing. And wow, they went to school for that. Um, I think one of my first hires uh, was was pretty special in that it was hiring somebody who was brand new to the field, which is a lot of things, questions I get asked from people, like, how do I get into InfoSec? And so we hired someone who was brand new to the field and had just all the right qualities, but not a lot of knowledge and experience. Um, and we're at the point, you know, two and a half years now where that person is um, speaking at three or four conferences a year, doing internal teachings and all that kind of stuff. They they just really uh, blossom because we took a chance on them uh, uh, because they had all those right qualities for learning and being you know self driven, and they just didn't have a lot of experience. So I think that those kind of uh, things um, are kind of some of my most uh, memorable things about building the team is is taking the right kind of chances, and you can't do that all the time. Sometimes you need. Uh, somebody with certain skills and, and experience level to to take on and solve a, com- a kind of problem. Um, I've had another person who came in and we weren't we we hired him and got him in and we weren't exactly sure where he would fit. So we kind of let him try out a couple of things for a little bit and he ended up landing in a uh, very specific niche thing and went on to like completely own that space and be um, ridiculously good at it. And so it was kind of cool to see him find his uh, thing that he likes, the thing that he's really good at, uh, and get you know, really good at it. So. Regarding college degrees, Zait sees them as much more of a perk rather than a huge advantage. At the end of the day, it's the skills and experience that matter, not the piece of paper itself. So of those interviews, have there ever been any that are memorable? Or what was your most memorable interview? It, it doesn't even become a, um, a tiebreaker. I've never, ever used having a degree or not having a degree as a tiebreaker. Um, it's all about, uh, do you kind of have a passion for, for security? Are you going out? Are you always learning? Are you communicating about it? And that kind of stuff. I'll be honest, when I'm looking at people's resumes, I don't care what they've done really more than three years ago because every three years kind of things have changed so much. Um, I mean, I look at it because especially if it's a senior person, I'm interested in kind of the experience they've had in the past because I want them to apply that in the future. But if it's someone's kind of straight out of college or um, you've only been in the industry a little bit, like I care way more about what you've done outside of your degree or outside of your your existing job. Like we've hired people who uh, a year before they joined us, they were a car mechanic. And they learned a bunch of stuff and showed us they can learn and come on board and are doing ridiculously good things. So, you know, you, you just got to be able to learn and show people that you can learn. And that's why I always tell people, like, show, show us that you can communicate, like build uh, things, have GitHub projects and contribute to software and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, show me uh, more things than, than just a degree or, 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 or uh, uh, I did, um, you know, I worked at this place for two years, you know, which is a similar kind of thing, right? Having a degree or working somewhere for two or three years, sure, you were at a place for a while, but like, show me what you learned. Show me some, some um, tangible proof that you learned stuff while you were there. So, 
However, you can't just have the skills, you also need to know how to apply them. And sometimes you might even need a, just a little bit more of something else to land a specific job. Yeah, it, you know, there's a difference between um, you can have skills, but if you don't know how to apply them effectively, then they're not super useful. Uh, and so, you know, uh, when I'm evaluating people, I'm evaluating, yes, great skills, but will they be able to uh, apply them effectively? And when you get into looking for senior people, what I want is people who can uh, apply them effectively, communicate, but have also experienced uh, some good and some bad situations and know the difference between them. Um, I, I generally say that I'm looking for people who recognize the answer when they find it, not people who know the answer. So. When Zayt was younger, he lived in the middle of nowhere, in the outback. Without much technology or a way to get to school, he used the radio to connect with his classmates and receive his lesson plans. But he was also basically homeschooled. It's kind of a long way from where I am, from where I kind of grew up. I grew up in kind of the middle of nowhere. You can definitely call it the outback in Australia. And we moved around from a lot of places, but some of the most remote places we went, you know, uh, didn't have electricity. The, 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 I guess you could call it a, a ranch. We call it a station was, you know, anywhere from 750,000 to a million acres kind of thing. Nearest people were, you know, a long way away, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, I certainly couldn't go to a regular school. So what we had was a radio. Uh, and I would get up at 8.30 in the morning was my school time and I'd get on the radio for 30 minutes with my classmates and my teacher and we'd talk about things and, and whatever. Uh, and then outside of that, I was basically homeschooled by my mom. Uh, they would fly in um, with our, you know, kind of uh, regular uh, mail deliveries and stuff, fly in my two weeks' worth of work. Uh, I'd do that in about two days and then I'd have the rest of the two weeks just riding my motorbike and cruising around and, and getting into all kinds of stuff. So. Sayed's interest in tech started after his dad got him a computer for his work. From there, he learned enough to help his mom with bookkeeping. When he was of age, he joined the military. And after leaving, Say found his way into tech as a systems engineer and eventually into security. But it wasn't a straight shot to Indeed. Zay first had a career in the gaming industry. Tell me a little bit about your life in the gaming industry. Uh, how different is that from the security industry? Uh, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, for me, it was, um, I was kind of looking at that time, at that point, I was making that transition from, um, from an IC to a manager. I was basically thinking, you know what? I think I have a better plan than the plans I've been following so far. And to follow my plan, I'm going to have to kind of be the leader. Uh, and so I was looking around for, for, for manager jobs, trying to get my first manager job. And I came across um, a posting for a job in Austin, Texas, uh, uh, building slash, you know, leading the security team for Bioware. And I was a massive fan of Bioware games. And I was like, well, that would be so cool to be doing the two things that I love, which is security and gaming. Like that would be amazing. Uh, and so I kind of applied for it and went through all the processes and and uh, and got the job and and moved the family from um, Tampa in Florida to to Austin in Texas where we are now. Uh, and so that kind of got me into that whole gaming world. And uh, I worked on uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic and and did a bunch of things for security related to that, uh, and it was a lot of fun. So um, yeah, it was it was it was good to get into that world. And it, they, there is a lot of overlap, but there's a lot of interesting overlap between security things in the gaming world that you find in many other places. A lot of uh, 
fraud and botting and, and all that okay. kind of stuff. So. Cool. Uh, what do you play now? What do I play now? I'm playing a bit of Path of Exile at the moment. Um, my my go-to game when I just kind of want to chill out and zen is a toss-up between Diablo 3 and uh, Elder Scrolls Online. Elder Scrolls Online because it's the um, it's very zen game experience. It's kind of the best MMO out there right now, but it is the game I'm most proud of working on. I've got my name on you know a bunch of AAA titles, Fallout 4, Doom 2016, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, but Elder Scrolls Online is the one I'm most proud of because of uh, our involvement in where it started, which was probably not super awesome, a lot of botting and and all kinds of stuff. But to where it is now, um, it is you know a world apart, and it's just such a a beautiful, um, well voiced Zen gaming experience. It's my place to to go and just chill out for gaming. So. Gotcha. What else do you do for fun and self care? Uh, my latest thing is woodworking. Like, uh, I was writing software for a while, doing a lot of GoLang stuff and just experimenting. You know, uh, my day job as a as a, a manager uh, doesn't have me doing much, if any, tech in this job. In previous manager roles, I kind of filled both roles, but in in this role, I have more than enough people to take care of the tech things. So, uh, I was doing a whole bunch of you know learning GoLang and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I had uh, a friend of mine, and he, he works for me now. It's just the, kind of the third time he's worked for me. But um, uh, I was joking one day and said, I, I want to have more Twitter followers than him. Uh, and so he bought me um, 30,000 fake followers for, for Christmas. Um, I just wake up one day, and I'm starting to get these random followers, and it's more and more and more and more, and I end up with, you know, over the course of time. So I took that upon that to uh, dive into some machine learning and some Golang and that kind of stuff and wrote, uh, some stuff that went through and looked at all my followers and got rid of the bad ones and stuff. So there was a lot of that. But what I was finding is the the Zen piece I was looking for of creating something and going, ah, that's cool. I created something. Uh, I only got irregularly when I was writing software. I didn't always hit that. And when I jumped into woodworking, which is kind of my go-to thing to completely disconnect from tech and go and do things and create things and uh, uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I get that every time I create something. Like you get that, wow, I just, I built this thing uh, kind of feeling. Uh, I think part of that comes too from our job in information security um, is it's generally not super creative. We're not building the product most of the time. In fact, if you are security and you're building the product, you're kind of a different kind of security, I think. But most of the time in corporate security and defensive, you know, blue team security, we're not building the product. We kind of go the other direction from the people who are building the product. And so there's oftentimes I find um, I need a little bit of creative outlet. And for me, that's woodworking. So. Following your Twitter profile, I see that you have recently kind of come back from a vacation to kind of like bounce back from burnout. Uh, tell me, Tell me about that. What does burnout look like for you? Uh, well, uh, burnout for me personally just kind of comes in the form of um, feeling more and more frustrated, feeling more and more like, uh, is this, am I sure this is what I want to be doing? Am I being effective? Uh, am I doing the right things for my team and, and, and those kind of things? Uh, and it, for me, um, burnout becomes um, physical. Um, like I start getting uh, aches in my arms and hands. I get uh, you know, little kind of um, 
chest aches and stuff and you can you can start uh having a compound going oh my god am i sick am I having you know some kind of problem that gets into your back and your shoulders and it just it, it it starts to really just manifest itself as a physical thing because you're dealing with in some cases some stress and some uh responsibility and some uh tension and, and that kind of stuff all the time like many of those in security, Zate deals with constantly receiving and giving bad news. On top of that, he has to deal with the pressure of people not taking those warnings seriously and then facing the aftermath. I, I think how you bounce back from burnout is uh, obviously recognizing that, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get a bit more jaded and like this is really not who I am and like uh, I'm starting to kind of dislike my job and and all that kind of stuff and once you recognize that stuff you need to go all right i need to take a little time or find a way to uh disconnect a little bit from the stuff that is causing this and connect with something that can help me kind of drain some of that out and um you know for me recently when i went through um things it was um you know building out my shed and, and getting all that ready. I, I took a two week break and basically just spent uh, all day, every day disconnected from technology, doing stuff with my hands and, and, and everything. And uh, different people do different things, but you have to be able to uh, you know, do that. And you don't have to go uh, and take a two week break, you know, all the time. You can just do some stuff on the weekend. You can do some stuff in the evening. Um, it's finding the stuff that helps you kind of just, disconnect and this is coming from the uh i've always got to have my cell phone and i'm always logged into slack and all that kind of stuff like i could be at home on pto and you know i used to have three monitors set up here and the left one was logged into work email and slack and all that kind of stuff and i just don't do that stuff anymore uh, you, you've got to be able to disconnect from it so and what is your personal metric for success as you build your team um, as you build your base camp uh, how do you define that uh, my personal metric for success is, uh, it's, I mean, you, you can get it measured and there are plenty of things to measure it, but I kind of just measure it by my gut. But it's like, how does my team feel about what I'm doing? Are they, uh, am I, am I doing the right things for them? Am I, um, you know, am I helping them? Am, am I useful? Um, you know, I'm not doing tech stuff anymore, but am I still providing all the things that they need to do to get get the job done? Because you know, when I started building teams, the the biggest thing that I realized is uh, I can learn a lot of different tech, and I can go and read books and learn a lot of a lot of different things. Um, but I'm never ever going to be able to accomplish as much on my own as I can do with uh, a bunch of people. Are all working together, you know, towards accomplishing uh, something. And so, for me, the, the the kind of measure of success is getting all those people together, them being able to do their jobs, and me being of value and adding value to what they do, and us all accomplishing stuff together. That's um, what is the security culture at Indeed? Um, security culture at Indeed is pretty good. Um, it's a very, it's it, it's a very cool culture there from people they're very forward leaning on security and very interested and um very security conscious it's it's honestly been one of the easiest places i've, I've worked at to do security education you know about phishing and all that kind of stuff they're very kind of into that and the engineering org has lots of people in it who are uh some of them are ex-security people themselves who are now building software and and all that kind of stuff so there's a lot of 
uh, you know, positivity uh, uh, kind of around around all of that stuff. So, um, as a manager, how do you kind of consolidate that, and how do you, I guess, manage that kind of like headbutting almost between like security people and software engineers? Um, I I think some of that is up to the the uh, the organization. I think part of that too is is you know this is where that whole shift into the DevSecOps world starts happening. Um, if you have a good um, uh, culture around things like if you build it, you're responsible for securing it, um, then it can very much help um, because you want to create that um, that relationship where you, where you do become more of going the same direction that the people who are building things are understanding that, hey, uh, there's risks involved in this, and there's problems, I need you to help me identify them uh, and then I need you to help me make sure we do the right things to get rid of them. If you build that kind of relationship, it definitely helps. Um, many people get stuck in cultures uh, at a company that are not that way or get stuck um, in in situations where it's kind of adversarial, where the, the people who are trying to you know, do business and make money because you know that's what businesses are about, see security as, oh, that's the thing that's in the way. If you're in those kind of things, it's really hard. And for me, the difference there is whether leadership sees security as a business problem or sees security as a technical problem. And by security, I mean the whole risk, trust and safety, whatever it is that applies to a certain business. But if they see it as a business problem, they'll solve it like any other business problem by, by kind of understanding it and, and getting the right people to work on it and solve it to move forward. If they see it as a tech problem, they'll push it over to security and say, this is yours to solve. Please get out of our way. Uh, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, what is your security philosophy? I guess as a manager, uh, my security philosophy. Well, I, I kind of have two main schools of thought that I follow. Uh, I absolutely follow the "if you built it, it's your responsibility to secure it." We're here to help you uh, because I think if you're building stuff and then not caring about security and just tossing it out there, then you are going to, you know, you're a um, adding significant risk to the business and are probably hurting your business. Um, but B, you know, it, you can't just build stuff and throw it out there. Well, plenty of people do, but it's not the security team's job to come behind you and, and clean up after you kind of deal. Um, my second kind of philosophy is I build security programs and security teams that are usually designed around um, trying to protect against you know, real-world uh, threats and attackers. Um, I completely get compliance. And in my early career, I used to think compliance was silly. I'm like, who would want to do that stuff? How boring you on. Uh, now I get compliance, and I think it is completely valid and very, very important. The whole you know governance, risk, and compliance GRC thing is critical. Um, I, it's just not the side of the fence I operate on or the, or the side of that kind of the, the collection of people, you know, under the whole trust and safety thing that I operate on. Um, so I focus mostly on, um, delivering something that I think, uh, reduces the risk to the business as much as possible in as many areas as I can. And then I believe that doing that should allow us to be compliant with just about anything that we have to be compliant with. You may have to do some specific things or prove things in a specific way, but that's usually not my focus unless, you know, someone specifically asks for those kind of things. Uh, and so when I'm looking, um, you know, for people to hire and that kind of stuff, I favor things like, uh, OSCP, 
uh, and OSCE and that kind of stuff, which are you know, certifications and, and, and stuff that are, kind of give you a lot more of that attacker perspective. Um, you know, I like having um, people who think like an attacker and will go and look at an application and say, oh, yeah, I understand, like, people are just going to tear that apart and here's what they're going to do, blah, blah, blah. So part of that is, you know, when we talked about that person who sits in the room who's always thinking uh, the worst possible scenario, uh, they're a necessary uh, part of kind of the programs and the things that I build because I I want my people to be looking at, um, you know, not just doing enough to pass an audit or anything like that, but actually thinking, like, what's going to um, reduce the risk down to a sufficient level for this thing here. So. Gotcha. Okay. So not putting like the blinders on and focusing on like getting that one thing done, but like thinking a bit more holistically almost. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I don't really think about it as putting the blinders on. There are certain people whose job it is to focus on uh, making sure we are compliant with certain kind of things because you know, compliance does, does play a role, especially, you know, um, uh, you've got certain, you know, things like GDPR and SOX and, and all that kind of stuff that, you know, you've got to kind of, and, you know, PCI and, and whatever that, um, you know, are, are real world things that you have to deal with, real world um, consequences and risks a lot of the time. I just don't stop there. I think that you can get those certifications uh, and, the, and be compliant with those things just by doing good security. So I'm also in a favor of a, a lot of things that are like, more like that, you know, if you're looking for kind of a, a framework to help set out, hey, here's the things that I think I want to work on and, and that kind of stuff. You know, I'm a fan of the CIS, you know, top 20 critical controls, which is pretty tactical, or the NIST CSF, which is a little more strategic. But I'm a fan of those kind of things that you can map to other compliance requirements. You can say, look, I'm doing this core set of things. And then I took the core set of things and I examined that against what we do as a business and what our risks are and expanded it out into areas and did some other things that I think are important for what we do. Uh, but it covers all of these other compliance things uh, and be able to you know, map, map those kind of things. I think that is, is kind of you know, the philosophy that I, that I go for when I'm uh, trying to build out um, you know, security programs. And at the end of the day, you know, no one is, you know, 100% secure. Um, you're mostly, like I said, you're building things that um, help inform the business about risk uh, and help translate stuff. But one of the ways that you help, inf- you know, you measure risk is if you can uh, make risk smaller, it's easier to measure. If you can put a control in place that, you know, shifts the risk down on the scale or up on the scale or, or, or whatever for, you know, likelihood and impact and some of those um, traditional things, then, you know, that's pretty much what we do. When you really get down into it, if you, you, um, you know, you go in and say, take a big flat network and segment it, you're really saying, I want to limit the impact potentially of a thing that's going on here, which, you know, is a risk reduction. Uh, you know, way and that kind of stuff. But anytime you modify any of the, the parts of, of measuring risk, you kind of make it a little more accurate, uh, which, you know, at the end of the day is kind of what we do. We collect all that up and turn it into something that business leaders can understand. So when they're making decisions, not only do they say, oh, I can make $200 million doing this thing, they could say, yeah, but I could lose a billion by not taking care of this other thing here. Uh, and maybe I should at least devote some resources and time to looking at that. I guess you as a manager also have the extra like 
onus that you have to try to um, like i would assume like try to manage the burnout of your employees as well right yeah or especially your direct reports um i guess how do you do that what things have you learned along the way of doing that um i i've learned some interesting things along the way uh, of doing that i think that you know you've got to pay attention to people you've got to talk to people uh even when i kind of moved from having you know much of the team at one stage i think it was 18 direct reports i had but as i moved to having uh you know i've got managers reporting to me now and they've got direct reports i still make sure to kind of keep in contact with the team uh, as to try and walk around and talk to people and, and that kind of stuff and i make an active effort to um talk to my managers and ask them questions that forces them to talk to their people and ask them questions kind of thing so i think that's super important I think some of the other stuff is, you know, a lot of companies now are having this um, unlimited PTO and, and and all that kind of stuff. Um, when I, you know, I'm at a company that has unlimited PTO, I'm not thinking, oh, great, my people are going to take too much PTO. I'm actually thinking, and my experience has been, great, I got to keep an eye on people who are not taking enough PTO. Because in those situations, some people feel... They don't feel obligated to take it anymore and they feel, uh, I don't know, they, for some reason they just, uh, some people don't take as much uh, in those situations. So I find myself just kind of, you know, pulling a report every now and then and going down and looking at who is not taking enough and then either talking to them myself or talking to their manager saying, hey, you know, I think this person, just talk to them and make sure they're doing all right and that they can, you know, take a break and uh, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So, as a manager, Zate's security philosophy is that it's not the security team's job to clean up after the software engineers, and that compliance is super important, especially when it comes down to reducing as much risk as possible. When Zate's building his teams, he likes to have someone on staff that can take over for someone who is sick or on PTO, so that they can more easily make a disconnection from work. He's also taught his managers four crucial things. One, make sure that your team members are aligned. Two, make sure that your team members have the tools they need for the job. Three, make sure that your team members feel cared for as a person. And finally, four, make sure that your team members are developing their skills and growing. This tactic has increased employee happiness and productivity, as well as has dealt with issues such as employee burnout before they arise. Um, I actually have a guest question for you. It's from one of your employees. Um, but he wanted to, he wanted me to ask, um, what are some things that you know now that you wish you knew when you started out in either tech or security? Wow, that's a pretty good question. I, I think um, one of the uh, one of the, the things that I look at some of my uh, younger and earlier in their career um, uh, people in security, especially, and the thing I, I kind of try and yeah, it feels like fatherly advice or whatever, but I try and kind of push off on them is um, it's not your responsibility. Like it's not your responsibility to take on the weight of um, all the security problems and the risks and the vulnerabilities. And sometimes you can get into environments where stuff's bad in places. It's not your responsibility. It's not your fault. And not to take um, the businesses not, not fixing things or not doing things personally um, because at the end of the day you can present the business with here are the problems here are the risks uh, and people who are in charge they make the decisions um, and it can be hard sometimes to to understand those decisions and go but what, but what why don't you want to fix it? why don't you want to do this thing um, 
and there's kind of two things going on there. One is there's probably a lot more going on than you know about, and B, uh, it really isn't your um, responsibility to make them do stuff. It's just kind of your responsibility to to help them understand stuff. And, you know, when you go through the info and you look at the infosec community and uh, what do we want to call it, risk and and the whole thing, whether you're a uh, you know, uh, a penetration tester or a compliance person or whatever, at the end of the day, um, what you're there for is you're an instrument to measure risk and convert it into stuff the business can understand so they can make decisions. Um, and that's kind of funny where, you know, people are like, what's the difference between a, a, a red team and a pen test? And I'm like, eh, nothing. They both measure risk, um, you know, but obviously there's a lot of difference between them. But at the end of the day, what we do in, in security is we help the business understand uh, risk about certain kinds of things. You know, we can call it cybersecurity or whatever, but you've got to understand that it's not your job to fix everything. And that's stuff that really early on in my career, I would get kind of fired up about, about not fixing these damn things and that kind of stuff. And I've seen other people get like almost physically clenching their hands and stuff because they're so frustrated that people aren't uh, doing the obvious, like things like, why can't you see this? And um, again, that contributes to the whole burnout and stuff. You just got to tell people like, relax you've made people made it known to people uh, that's your job that's that's what you're here for that's that's your role that's because there can be a number of reasons for why a breach occurs and it's not always the security team's fault it could be that someone higher up didn't take an issue as seriously and didn't have it fixed fast enough i think the biggest thing i've seen in security that worries me is um, executives and senior leadership who still in 2019 don't understand that cybersecurity is something every single business has to worry about you cannot operate a business today without having some element of cybersecurity being uh, important and you know newsflash if your business is building software cybersecurity is 90 percent of what you're going to worry about and if you do not have uh, a pretty robust program to manage that you're a ticking time bomb and it is amazing to me how many uh software companies are just not understanding that you don't have to have a uh you know a completely um like separate team and that kind of stuff it can be integrated into your engineering team but if you're building software you have to consider building um uh secure software but security is starting to morph i think as it becomes a thing that every company needs, it's starting to morph, right? It's moving away from, oh, I've got a security team, and now it's becoming, oh, I've got a trust and safety team because I'm concerned with not just the risks to my business, I'm also concerned with the risks to my customers from our products or from people misusing our stuff, um, from privacy and all those kind of things because uh, obviously people using our products is important and I want them to trust it and feel very safe. And so you're starting to see this evolution of this kind of trust and safety kind of orgs that have these two spheres. One is risk to the business, one is risk to the customer, especially with things like GDPR and CCPA coming around. You know, it's definitely um, those two sides. Um, and cybersecurity forms a part of that, but definitely not like all of it. There's a, a lot more involved. Um, and when you really get down to it and start looking at it, things like the old um, CIA triad, you know, the confidentiality, integrity, and availability are, are kind of evaporating and going away. Like availability, that's SRE now. Uh, that's, a, that's a whole discipline over, over the, uh, on the other side there. Like your confidentiality, yeah, that's your privacy team and your privacy engineering team. And then the integrity piece, yeah, that's basically DevSecOps now. 
So that whole CIA stuff has kind of morphed into other portions of the business, but only in places where the business understands security is a business problem. In places where it's still a tech problem, you get the traditional centralized security team, thou shalt not, pushing it down. Uh, maybe in some kinds of businesses and things that have been around a long time, that works. Anything reasonably new and wants to go fast and be uh, agile and all that kind of stuff, and I don't mean agile in the, you know, the, the agile stuff, I just mean be able to change direction and, and, and um uh, keep up with with uh, customer needs. Um, you've got to basically build security in into everything, at least on the product side. Corporate side, different story. But product side, like it should all be built in, and it's a business problem, not a, a tech problem. So, from radio school to PwC to the game industry, Rapid Seven, and to building your base camp at Indeed, um, what is one lesson you would like to pass down to all the people listening? I think one lesson is uh, trust your instincts, trust your gut instincts. It, it, it's um, to me, it's crazy that uh, in a data-driven society, we will build um, AI to crunch a bunch of numbers uh, and spit something out, which is basically a guess, and we'll go, "Yes, that's it." But we won't trust uh, a an. Uh, not even an AI, but a, a, a system that's organic and has been around for you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years that has access to significantly more experience and data points than you know any of the best AI models, and is you know invariably far more accurate. So we'll trust the the data coming out of an AI model over you know someone's instinct and gut. And I've actually had a lot more success with um, trusting instinct and gut, especially on hiring and and building things. Um, and you know, when our problems in InfoSec are people related, you absolutely have to rely a lot more on uh, your instinct and gut. So uh, I think listen to your, your gut and your instinct um, and, and kind of trust that over data sometimes. So. Uh, well, Zay, thank you so much for joining me on the show. No problem. This was really good. What's fun? Um, do you have any shameless plugs, words of wisdom, shout outs, anything that you like to tell everyone? Uh, to be honest, not really. <laughs> I mean, a okay. shout out to my team. Uh, they are fantastic. But um, no, I think I'm good. Hey there. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in what Zate's up to, make sure to follow him on Twitter at Zate. You can also follow his account, Security Best Practices, so that you're always, well, following security best practices. And if you're interested in what we're up to, make sure to follow us on Twitter at HackerCultureFM or visit our website, HackerCulture.FM. This episode was recorded and mixed by me. Mary Vung wrote this episode, and I also got to make the cover art. Special thanks to Zate for an awesome conversation, and we wish him the best, leading team super awesome at Indeed. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at HackerCultureFM or emailing me at Sean at HackerCulture.FM. I'd love to hear what you think and use your feedback to improve this show. Also, make sure to go on our website so you can find some really cool merch that directly supports your favorite creators. See you in two weeks wherever you listen to podcasts.